Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We are on vacation this week, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing show for you. Columbia Journalism School professor Alexander Still talks to us about the recently deceased former Italian president Silvio Berlusconi and how we can thank him for America's politics today, including... Trumpism. But first, we have former Congressman Mondaire Jones. Welcome to Fast Politics, your friend and mine, Mondaire Jones. Mondaire, do you have something you want to tell me? <laughs> Perhaps an announcement? I do have an announcement to my district in the 17th Congressional up in the Lower Hudson Valley, to you and to the world. And that is, I'm going to be running for a term in Congress to continue the important work that I started last term. Yes. What does that mean exactly? You're running? I'm running. He's running, folks? I am running. I'm so excited to be continuing the fight to serve the people who raised me in Rockland, Westchester, Putnam and Dutchess counties, and to lower costs for working families, to save democracy itself from this Republican fascist takeover of our country, to make sure that we get weapons of war off the streets, and yes, to protect basic freedoms like the freedom to have an abortion. All of these things are at risk because of what we are seeing come out of Washington, particularly the House of Representatives, and what will likely happen with the Republican presidential nomination. So you were in Congress before. Explain to us a little bit about New York had a radical redistricting, 11th hour redistricting, and you kind of let the other guy run. Talk to us a little bit about that. Last year, 
was a nightmare. I never imagined waking up and seeing a redistricting process and political machinations come out of Washington that resulted in my congressional district up in the 17th being torn apart and being faced with the prospect of running against a member of my own party and a colleague in Congress. In that moment, we were facing a nearly unprecedented assault on democracy by Republicans in Congress and nationally. We were looking at the freedom to have an abortion that was on its way to being taken away. We had seen the draft opinion in Dobbs. We had seen so much coming from the Republican Party that I did not want to make it less likely that my constituent would continue to be represented by someone who cared about democracy, by someone who would fight to protect the freedom to have an abortion, by someone who would continue to fight for working people like the family I grew up in. And so rather than have a bruising primary with the chair of the DCCC, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I decided uh, to, to maximize the likelihood that my constituents would can you, can you continue to be well represented uh, and as a result ran in a different district. And that chair of the DCCC actually lost. He lost anyway by 1,820 yeah. votes to yeah. a career political operative who will tell you anything you want to hear, but who will do anything that Kevin McCarthy and the extreme MAGA Republicans in Congress tell him to do. And that person's name is Mike Lawler. I think it's important to pause for a minute. Democrats lost a lot of seats in New York State, perhaps because of the ghost of Andrew Cuomo and his nonpartisan redistricting, which he set up in 2012, kicked the can down the road a decade. And then we found ourselves in the middle of a nonpartisan redistricting nightmare and his obsession with holding on to power in a theoretically nonpartisan, but really Republican way. Democrats lost a bunch of seats to Republicans, ultimately causing them to lose the House. A lot of these candidates ran as not MAGA, they ran as sort of, quote unquote, normal Republicans. But it turns out it doesn't matter at all. They still vote with Kevin McCarthy. They vote with Kevin McCarthy and with the extreme MAGA Republicans in Congress. They are indistinguishable from that cohort when you look at their voting record. So let, let's run the ticket, right? So in the first legislative vote that Mike Waller took was to repeal provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Specifically, he voted to gut the IRS so that billionaire corporations and very wealthy people could more easily cheat on their tax. Right. Then had the nerve a few months later to complain about the deficit after having just voted for a policy that would have reduced the revenue that the U.S. government receives. And by the way, in the process of taking us to the brink of default as a nation on our debt, voted for a bill that would cut services to veterans and reduce funding for law enforcement in the midst of our nation's uniquely American gun violence epidemic, he voted a few weeks ago to overturn the ATF rule on gun braces, right. which would make us less safe from gun violence, in particular from mass shootings. He continues to oppose the freedom of women to have an abortion. He opposes a ban on AR-15s and other assault weapons, weapons of war that have no business being in the hands of civilians, but wants to talk about crime 
I'm happy to talk about crime, Molly. I, I relish the opportunity <laughs> to talk about public safety in this campaign. I mean, the incredible thing about the crime situation is that we have a quote unquote Democratic mayor, but that is really just in quotes, who is obsessed with making the case that there's a terrible crime wave. But murders are down and a lot of these crimes are actually flat. I mean, you may have complaints, but uh, that's what it is. Well, look, I, I want to be clear. New Yorkers deserve to feel and to actually be safe. And it's why I have consistently voted for historic levels of police funding every time I've gotten the chance in the United States Congress. In fact, last fall, I was the deciding vote on a rule that then resulted in six police funding bills getting a vote on the House floor. And I voted for every last one of them. Right. It's also not lost on me that the Lower Hudson Valley is one of the safest places in America. When you look at the U.S. News and World Report, rankings from a year or two ago, Rockland County, third safest county in America, Westchester County, fourth safest county in America, Putnam County, 12th safest county in America. And at some point we had to have a discussion about how the Republican description of the Hudson Valley as this crime ridden hellscape <laughs> is an affront to the important work that law enforcement officers do every single day to keep us safe. They're doing an outstanding job and we have to continue to support them. And so I, I just want to make clear my position on that. Well, I think it's really important that we talk about this because this is not with Republicans, just like with the border. This is not about keeping people safe. This is about finding an issue to get the base excited. Right. I mean, God forbid Republicans have to run on their record on the economy. I mean, Joe <laughs> Biden, for all of the criticisms that people may have about his age, perhaps in the minds of many voters, is someone who has presided over and has a record that he can take credit for of creating the most jobs, many millions of jobs in his in his first term, which is not even complete yet, of any president in modern history, if not in the history of this great nation. You know, we have lowered the cost of prescription drugs so that by the year 2025, people on Medicare, like my grandmother, will not have to pay more than $2,000 annually for prescription drugs. And we have seen incrementally the effects of that legislation known as the Inflation Reduction Act, in that in January of this year, for example, as of January of this year, no, no person on Medicare is paying more than $35 monthly for the cost of insulin. Uh, right. This is a president that has, you know, along with Democrats in Congress like myself, who you know, I actually negotiated passage of the infrastructure law and brought the party together in that moment. Is he passed the largest infrastructure bill in generations, which has brought and we'll be bringing billions of dollars to New York State alone to, to repair our crumbling roads and bridges and to complete the Gateway Project, for example, which is of great interest to my constituents in the Hudson Valley. Uh, he passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which made strides in, in ensuring marriage equality is, is the law of the land. You know, this is a president who, along with Democrats like myself, helped keep small businesses open through our expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so much more. You can tell I'm really passionate about this. stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's really important that, you know, I continually think that Biden has really been underestimated and underappreciated for many of the things he's done, including his really liberal policies. I mean, he was not my pick in 2019, but he's ultimately passed a lot of really liberal legislation. And and I think, you know, we're seeing right now Republicans trying desperately because they see the writing on the wall and they know Trump is going to be 
the 2020 candidate, or at least they're pretty sure, which we all are, you know, are trying to get other people to run to the left of Biden because they know that Biden, you know, Biden reads like a normal Democrat, standard Democrat, but he has actually done a lot of really progressive legislation. You know, I don't even think of it as progressive legislation or liberal legislation. I think of it as legislation for working people. When you do the polling, this stuff is extremely popular, including with Republicans. Do you remember, I think it was sometime last year, uh, Congressman Byron Donald was Republican down in Florida. And I think maybe some other people were present at this private fundraiser and they got caught on a hot mic talking about how, you know, if you if you start giving the American people, these policies that they're going to start voting Democratic because they're so popular. That's why you hear these sort of manufactured, factually incorrect stories about New York City trying to ban pizza ovens and nonsense like that, because I don't want to talk about the bread and butter issues that people care about. People care about how they don't put food on the table for their families. And I, I know this intimately because I grew up poor in Rockland County and my mom worked multiple jobs to provide for our family. And because the economy wasn't working to the point where she could just work one job. And, and have that be enough. And and of course, she got help raising me from my grandparents. My grandfather was a janitor and my grandmother cleaned homes. And because childcare was so expensive. Which it still is, if not worse now. Yeah, go on. Yeah. You know, oftentimes I had to go to work with her. And then through the grace of God and an entire community in Rockland County that raised me, made it all the way to the halls of Congress where I got to represent the same people whose homes I watched my grandmother clean growing up. But, you know, no one should have to go through what I went through as a child. This is an economy that can work for everybody. And I want to continue that fight, not not give tax breaks to billionaires and billion dollar corporations and try to play this sort of rhetorical jujitsu where, you know, Mike Lawler, the incumbent Republican is saying he wants to do something about the salt cap, that $10,000 limitation on the state and local tax deduction, and not even acknowledge that it was Republicans in December 2017 as part of the first Trump tax scam that that, that put that cap into place, which crushed families here in the Hudson Valley. Right. I want to talk about that salt tax for a minute because it's such a favorite topic of mine and Jesse so loves it when I talk about it. But, you know, that was ultimately the goal with the salt deduction was that in a state where you had higher local and state taxes, those taxes were usually used to buttress schools and, you know, they were used to create a better quality of life for the people in blue states. Right. So you had higher state taxes because that money went to public schools and went to services for people. And in states like Texas, where you didn't have state and local income tax, that was because they didn't give a fuck about children or public schools or anything like that. So the idea was to punish those blue states by raising their taxes. You know, I'm proud to live in a state and in a community where government invests in infrastructure uh, and in great public schools. You know, we've still got work to do with some of our our school systems. But, you know, and here in the Hudson Valley, we've, we've generally got great public schools. And that's because we invest in creating great public schools. I wish more communities had the resources to do that. But we should not be punished by Mitch McConnell and other Republicans in Congress because of who we vote for for president. And it's exactly what Republicans like Mike Lawler did back in December 2017. And so he doesn't get to to run away from that record of his party. Yeah. And I do think that it's really important when we talk about, you know, the way the government is supposed to work is that we are supposed to be represented no matter who we voted for, no matter the color of the state, a blue state, a red state, the president 
president is a president for everyone. What was interesting about Donald Trump is that he had no interest in growing the electorate, which is why he didn't get reelected. And he just wanted to deliver for red states. And this is sort of a vestige of that. It is a vestige of that. And this guy is now likely to be the Republican nominee for president next year. And I, and I want people to really sit with that because I know that there is concern over the president running for re-election. But as he has said, I think quite effectively, do not compare me to the perfect, compare me to the alternative. And I think that's right. This is a district here in, in the lower Hudson Valley that Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in by 10 points. If, if we are not flipping seats that Joe Biden won by 10 points, then we are simply not taking back the majority in the House of Representatives. Of those 18 House districts that Biden won, this is his fifth largest margin of victory. So it is literally the fifth vote required to take back the House of Representatives so that we can finally pass voting rights and other democracy reform legislation, so that we can pass legislation to codify Roe v. Wade, so that we can pass legislation to increase the federal minimum wage, which hasn't changed since 2009, and it is an abomination uh, at, at the current level so that we can continue to lower the cost of prescription drugs, not just for people on Medicare, but for people throughout our economy and throughout our society. These and so many other issues are what's at stake. And it's not lost on me that Donald Trump is even more dangerous than he was the first time that people chose Joe Biden over Donald Trump. You know, this guy is going to pardon the insurrectionists that nearly took my life and the lives of hundreds of other members of Congress on January 6th. But he has just been criminally indicted for the second time for doing what I think few people had imagined, which was stealing and then sharing national security secrets (laughs) that put our service members and the nation at risk. Yes. And also, it was funny because we're only two indictments in. I mean, there's still the fake. (laughs) The summer is not over. There is still the fake electorate indictment, which is coming down the pike. It is. And then there's the (laughs) January 6th investigation. After Donald Trump was indicted for the second time this year, this time by the, the Department of Justice, Mike Lawler told the press that the FBI and the DOJ were politicized. And he made that statement without any evidence. And I got to tell you, I, I just never imagined waking up one day and, and seeing my member of Congress now in this district participate in the assault on the rule of law in this country, especially coming from a guy who belongs to a party that claims to care about the rule of law, and the assault on our institution, which is an assault on democracy itself, by the way. Yes. Absolutely true. So just give us the two seconds here. You have a primary. When is it? Give us the sort of the TLDR. I've got a little bit of a primary that will be decided by by June of next year in New York State. One of my opponents is the younger sister of the governor of the state of Michigan. I have great respect for anyone who would run against me in the primary. And, and so look forward to a robust exchange of ideas and uh, frankly, I look forward to campaigning on my record of accomplishment and of delivering actual results for uh, people in the lower Hudson Valley these past two years. I am optimistic based on the energy on the ground, people urging me to run, urging me to restore the leadership that this district deserves. And candidly, Molly, a lot of people who are just really hurt by the unfair way in which people in our district were treated 
last year, both by national Democrats and yes, by the acting Supreme Court judge up in Steuben County, uh, who, who redrew the congressional district and caused a lot of damage, frankly, to the interests of the people here. And so I'm looking forward to making right to redressing that injustice and continuing to to deliver for my constituents who, again, I, I just love so much and, and who took me from poverty to, to the halls of Congress. The bond that I have is one that I cherish every day with these people. So please, if you care about saving our democracy and protecting basic freedoms and continuing to lower costs for working people and getting weapons of war off our streets, go to mondaireforcongress.com and smash that donate button. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mondaire. I hope you'll come back. Of course I'll come back. I mean, there's going to be a lot happening these next 16 months and it's, it's important to continue this discussion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Alexandra Still is a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. Welcome to Fast Politics, Alexandra. Hi, thanks for having me. Very excited to have you. One of the many smart things you've written recently is a really interesting idea that, in fact, Berlusconi walked so that Trump could run. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that what I was down intriguing about Berlusconi when he first kind of came on the scene, a lot of people kind of dismissed him as a kind of comical figure. Uh, You know, he'd been a crooner on a cruise ship when he was a student. He was kind of loud and vulgar. He seemed like a product of a certain kind of corrupt Italian culture. And what I think I noticed early on was that he was also an extremely innovative and uh, whether you like it or not, had pioneered a new kind of politics that he was sort of like the first postmodern politician. He understood that we had moved out of an era of party politics, ideology, uh, class-based politics in which uh, people voted their economic class and that Berlusconi had innovated a kind of interclass appeal. He was a billionaire, populist. Tell our listeners a little bit about Italy when Berlusconi came to power, what it looked like and how he did it. Sure. I wonder if I could just take one step back before that. Even more. That's great. Yeah. Which is, you know, Berlusconi made his first fortune in real estate and then quickly moved into television. There was no such thing as private TV before the mid-1970s, really. It was the monopoly of the Italian uh, state TV known as Rai. And the Italian high court had ruled that there could be private TV, but on a limited basis, uh, purely on a local, only local broadcast. Berlusconi saw an opportunity, jumped into it, bought up a lot of local stations, and then in typical Berlusconi fashion, skirted the rules by broadcasting the same program like three seconds apart, claiming that they were local, but then selling advertising nationally. So he quickly gained an advantage over his competitors and became the biggest figure in private TV, bought up his two biggest competitors, and by the early 1980s had literally a monopoly of private TV, 90% of the market of private television, and a kind of what was known as a duopoly with the, the three state TV channels and his three private channels, um, having like a 90% audience share in the country. So that was the first really big thing that he did. And, and in order to establish private TV, he changed the culture of Italy. And that what I think is so interesting about Berlusconi is that he, he changed the culture of the country and that culture then elected him as a politician. And what I mean by that is that the, the the world before Berlusconi in Italy was a kind of austere and moralistic. It was dominated by the Catholic Church. 
and by the Communist Party, both of which were kind of moralistic in their own different ways. You couldn't literally, for a long time, even advertise dog food on the state TV because it was considered to be immoral. And Berlusconi instead realized, if I'm going to make this private TV thing work, anything goes. All I care about is audience and advertising. I'm going to get the cheesiest, most popular programs. I don't work educating the public. And I need to create a world of desire in which a new Italians learn to long for things they didn't even know they wanted before and flood them, you know, so I have, you know, programs like Dallas and Dynasty, which create an atmosphere of luxury and wealth and material well-being. And then my uh, my viewers are going to want those things. So my advertisers are in turn going to pay me a lot of money in order to advertise their products. So we created this kind of materialistic culture, which followed a long period during the Cold War of ideological struggle between left and right. There was, you know, terrible terrorism in Italy during the 1970s. And Sconi promised a post-ideological world, a world in which let's not worry about, you know, all this politics stuff. Let's have a good time. Let's have fun looking at scantily clad women and, you know, watching cheesy programs and watching Baywatch. And so he offered a different kind of society in which you didn't have to be ashamed of being rich or wanting to be rich. And that's a very important predicate to his political launch. So then what happens is that in the early 90s, the political system that had sustained Berlusconi and protected his monopoly began to crumble. There was this big corruption investigation known as Operation Clean Hands, which started in 1992 and suddenly left him without his political protectors. And by 1993, these people were going to prison, fleeing the country, committing suicide. And he realized, holy shit. If I don't do something fast, I'm going to go the way of these people. And so, you know what? I'm going to actually take over the political system. He did something that nobody thought was possible. One thing you have to credit Berlusconi with is with extraordinary audacity and guts. And so he basically turned what was then already the largest or the second largest private company in the country into a political war machine. All parts of the company from the ad salesmen, the people who sold mutual funds to uh, the executives in the TV company, all are working toward the aim of electing Berlusconi and his newly formed party. Really sounds like Trump. And then it works. I mean, it was, it was like Trump on steroids in a sense. It was, you know, as if you had somehow married Trump and the Murdoch empire and, and created a hybrid figure, you'd have Berlusconi. So one of the other things he did, which is very much, should seem very familiar to American listeners, is that his media, before the creation of Fox News, created a hyper-partisan type of media. He, his three TV networks, his magazine group, his ropers, all began flooding the zone with pro-Berlusconi stuff and attacking anyone that dared to attack or criticize him. It's like Rupert Murdoch a little bit. Yeah, very much, very much. And it was very clear. I mean, they're one of the people who participated in these meetings and published a book in which he recorded some of the conversations. And Berlusconi said, we have to sing in chorus so that the people who attack us are then hit with concentrated fire and they will stop. That's sort of what happened. Anytime you raise your head and criticize Berlusconi, you you could count on, you know, scurrilous stories appearing about you 
fake scandals, uh, everything to kind of distract people from uh, what was happening with Berlusconi. So that ended up being a very successful model. He gets into power in 1994. And then things get very bumpy because a thing that is, in a sense, um, it's not unlike Trump. Trump came in promising that he was going to be the defender of the working class and he was going to stand up for the forgotten people who didn't get representation from the coastal elites, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the one economic uh, program he actually passes is a big tax cut that goes largely to the very rich. Berlusconi did the same thing. And... He promised to be a economic miracle worker. He was going to be the Italian Margaret Thatcher, who was going to cut bureaucracy and liberate the economic engine of the country. And he didn't do any of that because he wasn't really interested in the, the, the boring, difficult work of government. And what he really cared about was protecting his media empire from regulation and staying out of prison and keeping his associates up. Right. Like Trump. Very much. It's kind of a remarkable, it does sort of make you realize that there's something in this particular moment of history that produces these kinds of figures and then makes this a kind of winning formula. What he has or had that is also very much like Trump is this ability to appeal to people who are in a very different economic class from him. So ordinary working people who in Italy used to vote for the Italian Communist Party are suddenly voting for Berlusconi. Why? Because he seems authentic. They don't they know that his policies may not really align with their interests, but you know, they find his his personality appealing. The fact that he is tells off-color jokes and it's like Trump. Yeah, very much. It's, it's this idea in which you replace programs with authenticity. So you're not buying a a political program. You are buying a personality. And authenticity has become the value that you prize the most rather than, let's say, ideological consistency or a program that makes sense to you. So it's incredible. I mean, I read that piece and, you know, I grew up spending a lot of time in Italy because my mother had an Italian boyfriend who I think boyfriend is a generous term for what this relationship was. And so we spent a lot of time there and I grew up during the 80s and 90s. So Berlusconi was the guy and my mother always hated him because she thought he was a fascist. But they had a very similar, you know, they were both very into sex. They were both very into dirtiness and naughtiness and whatever. And um And, you know, he got involved with a lot of scurrilous people, et cetera, et cetera. And he did really, he went into office and like Trump, he had lots of trials. Yeah. Well, well, the, the, the thing you mentioned about sex, I think is important because one of the things that he did, as I mentioned, is that he changed the culture. Like you would not have had um, you know, naked or, or scantily clad women on state TV before Berlusconi. And so he's completely un, unapologetic about doing that. He introduces the first nude game show into Italy or the world, as far as I know. During all of his entertainment programs, even on serious subjects, you'd have a woman standing there in a kind of low-cut dress uh, showing her thighs, known as the Valina. And so that people could gawk at her while they're listening to something about soccer or um, or politics. Um, so he introduces, you know, sex and transgression becomes uh, part of his trademark, which is, again, very much like Trump. Um, you know, he would brag about his own sexual accomplishments, made no secret of it. 
created, you know, various scandals, you know, like he's visiting an earthquake zone with a an attractive female public official who's like, you know, worrying about, you know, people who've ended up homeless. And he ends up saying, you know, can I caress this woman? Right. He said. So that kind of thing where he's um these things that uh, sort of right thinking people were appalled by to a lot of ordinary Italians like, okay, yeah. He's not really a traditional politician. He's somebody like me. I might say something like that. Uh, certainly, I would have thought it. And he has the guts to say what other people think but don't say. So that's that's very much part of the Trump thing. Then the scandals begin to accumulate um, almost as soon as he gets into office because he goes into politics in part to head off these corruption investigations that are rising up the the ladder. And he knows that there are lots of skeletons in his own corporate closet. And like many businesses, he and his associates have had to pay bribes for years, and eventually these things will be find, found out. And in fact, they are. Um, it turns out that Berlusconi's chief lawyer has had various judges on his payroll. Um, hundreds of thousands of money, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars are traveling from Berlusconi corporate accounts into the Swiss bank accounts of a, of a sitting judge. 21 billion lira, which is about $15 million, was discovered uh, going into the account of uh, the socialist leader, Bettino Craxi, things like that. So all that stuff is accumulating even as he's trying to govern, which makes, of course, governing impossible because he's spending all of his time putting out these fires and going from crisis to crisis. So he ends up, his first government collapses partly because of these crises. Uh, but the thing about Berlusconi is that you can sort of map his career in the following way. When he's in power, things go badly and he governs poorly. As soon as he's out of power, it's like Superman regaining his um, <laughs> powers. And then he becomes an incredibly potent opposition figure uh, fighting to get back into power. Then he gets back into power. He's bored. He starts to make mistakes, uh, governs poorly. They kick him out. And then he goes back into opposition mode. So there are these kind of alternating periods you know, when he's in power in 94 and uh, then out of power until 2001, back in power and then again out and then back in power in, I think, 2008 to 2011. And then he also goes to jail. No, he doesn't. He never went to jail. He had many, many trials. Right. Okay. One of the things that's unfortunately, it's a little um, tricky to explain, but I'll keep it simple. Italy has three levels of judge uh, of judgment. So you can't be officially convicted until you've exhausted two sets of appeals. So you can be convicted at trial, but technically you're still not convicted until an appeals court has ruled on it and then the highest court has signed off on that. So it's hard to go to jail in Italy is what you're saying. It's hard to go to jail, but it's it's even worse than that because all countries have something called the statute of limitations where you can't be prosecuted years and years after the fact. But in almost all countries, the statute of limitation clock ends the moment judicial action begins. So you can't draw a case out and have it thrown out just because you've gone past the time limit. In Italy, that's not the case. And so Berlusconi, with his armies of lawyers and these three levels of appeal, would drag these cases out until the statute of limitations had run. And then he could say, hey, wait a second, I was never convicted. So he can just run out the clock on everything. I ran out the clock. And of course, most Italians didn't grasp the distinction between 
running out the clock with statute of limitation because he was actually convicted numerous times at a trial level or even on the second level of appeal, but the case was then um, thrown out on statute of limitation grounds. So there are many cases of that kind, including bribing a sitting senator to get him to change his vote and bring down a government, to give you an idea. He then is finally convicted, and I think it's 2013, of a tax fraud case, and that case makes it through all levels of judgment. He doesn't go to jail, but he is prevented from holding office for, I think, five years. That kind of puts him out of the game for, for a good period of time. Italy right now, what is happening over there? Well, I think what's happening, and in a sense, the hangover of the Berlusconi era is that Berlusconi's lack of interest in governing and incompetence meant that Italy was the slowest growing country in Europe for about 30 years. And so the country has been doing really quite poorly since the early 1990s. Over a million young people have left the country because they, they don't see a future for themselves in Italy. Um, they are living in the US and Canada and France, England, Germany, you name it. Those who stay live with their parents until they're in their 30s or 40s. So there's a really bad situation, which has meant that there's a lot of unhappiness and discontent with the political system. That's meant that they've elected a right-wing government headed by Giorgia Maloney, together with Berlus what remains of Berlusconi's party and another conservative party. So you can look at it as, oh my God, the post-fascists are back. But I think it's, it's perhaps more useful to look at the fact that Italy is kind of flailing around looking for a solution to these long, very deep-seated problems of, you know, huge public debt, slow economy, almost non-existent birth rate, you know, 1.24 children per, per woman, unhappiness with immigration, but a persistent need for immigrant labor in order to make it run. So they've got a whole lot of problems that they're grappling with. And uh, I don't know that they have the answers, but it means at the moment that that favors a right-wing government and we'll see if they can do something about these problems. But I think the, the problems are much deeper than that. And Berlusconi's biggest disservice to the country was failing to address all the issues that he got into politics saying he wanted to address. Maloney's government has been in for a year. Yeah, a little less than a year. Mm -hmm. Is your sense that there's anything good happening there? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, the economy is growing a little bit, but whether that has to do with her government or not, or just picking up, these things are really hard to parse. She's taking a hard line on immigration, but immigration continues. As much as ever, she wants to make it easier for Italians to raise families, but I don't see them reversing the demographic situation anytime soon. So I think it's it's a little bit too early to tell, but the problems are deep and are not going to be sort of solved by, you know, rhetorical positions. You can say, uh, I won't stop immigration, but I think last year, like 600,000 Italians died and less than 400,000 were born. So you have a deficit of 200,000 people every year of people who are dropping out of the workforce added to the pension rolls. So Italy has to come to terms with the fact that like it or not, it's going to become a multicultural society and it's not culturally ready to do that. And so that causes all kinds of problems. Thank you so much, Alexandra. I found this completely fascinating. I'm so just so interesting. I really appreciate you. Great. My pleasure. 
That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.